Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, one of the presenters for Dragon Bites and one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales. This week's episode is all about child poverty. Our Dragon Bites hosts this week are Rebecca Jones and Tom Cromarty, and they're joined by two consultants in paediatrics who both have an interest in child poverty. First, we have Dr. Julie Ann Maney, a consultant in paediatric emergency medicine working at the Royal Belfast Hospital for Sick Children. And secondly, we have Dr. Ian Sinner, a respiratory physician working at Alderhey Hospital. They'll be discussing the impact that child poverty can have on the long-term health of children and adults and the importance of engaging with governmental bodies to advocate for the children that we look after. This is the first of a two-part episode, so please join us again next week for the second half. Anyway, let's get started. Welcome to Dragon Bites. So today, um, myself, Rebecca Jones, a PEDS trainee in South Wales, and Tom Cromarty, who's a ST6 in seven, sorry, in emergency medicine, um, in paediatric emergency medicine, are joined by um, Julianne Maney and Ian Sinner to talk about child poverty in the UK. So if we just started off by for those guys who don't know, um, if you can both introduce yourself, if we start with you, Julianne, and then... Hello, um, lovely to talk to you today. My name's Julianne Maney, and I'm a consultant in paediatric emergency medicine in the Royal Belfast Hospital for Sick Children. Um, I've worked as a consultant for over 10 years now. Um, I'm also a forensic medical examiner for the police service of Northern Ireland, um, and I examine children who are victims of abuse. Um, and I wrote an article for RCPCH for their new Medium platform last year on child poverty. Um, and the um, blog was very well received. And um, subsequently, I've spoken at the conference in relation to child poverty, our last RCPCH um, conference. And it was widely covered in the media in Northern Ireland. So um, it was well received and actually hit home and um, was mentioned in our Northern Ireland executive at Stormont. So the message was received loud and clear by our politicians for what they are in Northern Ireland. So it's lovely to talk to you today on a subject that I'm passionate about. It's really great to have you. Oh, hello. So thank you for um, asking me along today. Um, My name's Ian Spinner. I'm a a consultant respiratory paediatrician at Alderhay Children's Hospital in Liverpool. Um, and and uh, like Julianne, I'm very interested in child poverty and uh, basically wider uh, determinants of health in children. Amazing. Thank you so much for both coming on. Um, and just started off, this may seem really basic, but can we just go what do we mean by poverty and child poverty how would we define that in our society yeah so there's a there's a couple of definitions for um poverty uh, one of them's absolute poverty where your household income is below 60% of the inflation adjusted uk median income 
Um, and then relative poverty, where the income falls below the 60% of the median income. Um, but it doesn't really matter how we define it. And I think that's why people get quite um, worried and annoyed about poverty and the definition of it. Um, but actually, there are so many children, nearly a third, 29% in Northern Ireland, in fact, who live you know, in, in and around the poverty line. Um, and I think as paediatricians, we sort of assume that all health can be solved and every problem with your health is, you know, a clinical issue, but actually it's mostly, um, as Ian said, about the social determinants of your health. Um, so, yes, there are lots of definitions, but that sometimes puts people off, I think. Um, and the problem with poverty is it's insidious. You know, it affects every single molecule of your being and you're, it's indelibly printed into your DNA from the moment of birth. So I think we just need to not worry about definitions, and although they're important, and just you know get to the root of the of the problem that you know nearly a third of the children in the UK are having a bad start in life, which continues throughout their life. Great, that's that's um, a really nice introduction. Um, and and Ian, you you did mention the social determinants of health. Uh, for people that don't know, kind of specifically, kind of what they are, would you mind just going into a bit more information on that, please? Yeah. So I think. Um... When we think about the social determinants of health, we can trace a lot of it back to, um, to to a handful of things, really. So we know that the amount of money you have around the time you get pregnant, even, is is an important determinant of your child, you know, your offspring, well, in terms of their lifelong health, in terms of their life expectancy, um, and that sort of financial impact carries on it, it's about how much money you have in your pocket and alongside that you know directly and indirectly related to that we know that there are um important things that influence how children's bodies develop so when we think about health inequalities in children what well, we're not thinking you know we're not just thinking about levels of asthma admissions in children aged seven years of age in different parts of the country that's bad and it's important that we that we try and address short-term inequalities but what we're really talking about here is lifelong inequalities in health and when you look at the marmot review and other reviews we see that life expectancy improvements had stalled and in fact started going backwards in in, in some groups we've seen no improvement at all in infant mortality uh, inequalities across the uk and what we can really trace this back to is is how um, how much money your family has. Alongside that, when we think about wider determinants of health, we should also be thinking about the impact that those finances have on how your body develops. So the reason that this becomes crucial when thinking about lifelong inequalities is that we know, for example, with the brain, the kidney and the lung and your cardiovascular system, by the time you're going to primary school, your body's already, you know, if, if not even before, your body's pre programmed really for, for for how healthy it's, it's going to be through the life course um, and the kinds of things as you can imagine related to money that would influence that would be the quality of your nutrition the quality of the housing in which you live the quality of the air that you breathe and the levels of psychological stress that you and your parents and your siblings uh, undergo all the time um, 
The other social uh, the determinant of health that is obviously generational here is uh, educational outcome as well. And we sometimes forget as paediatricians that we're not just in this to get people over whatever cough they turn up with. You, you know, what we really want is for children to live their best life and, and fulfil their potential and achieve all the things that they want to achieve. And the best way to break this cycle of inequality is um, is to actually improve education and, and get people to leave school with better qualifications and, and, and better life opportunities. Um, so yeah, I think that's what I mean by the social determinants of health. It's the things that determine how your body grows in you know in fetal life and infant life, and the things that determine your life opportunities and chances that you get to to, to live your best life. Yeah, that's I think that's pretty succinct. Um, and so, how much? Poverty, using kind of I suppose the various definitions that um, that you you talked about already, uh, Julianne, are is there in the UK? Um, you know, is this a big problem, or you know, you know, people tr- draw up images of you know thinking about poverty compared to places in other parts of the world. Um, so, so what's how how much of a problem is it in the UK? Well, it's a huge problem. So, um, I think we are the fifth or sixth richest nation in the in the world um, and we have levels of poverty that are just you know horrendous and we have a hugely unequal society um, and you know Marmot talks about leveling up and we have a lot of leveling up to do and um, we have seen you know decades of you know non-investment in public services social services and um, so you know if you look at the figures and I know in Northern Ireland um, it's about 29% of our children here live in poverty and it's about 26% across the whole of the UK. And different areas, you know, across the UK will have different levels of poverty. But that's a huge, you know, that's a nearly a third of our children who are, you know, not getting the life chances that they deserve. And poverty starts to affect you from the moment of conception. You know, and Ian has already, you know, discussed some of those social determinants, but, you know, so around the time of your conception, your mother's health, your mother's poor perinatal health, you know, um, more increased risk of premature delivery, lower rates of breastfeeding. And then when you move up into your um, early, you know, preschool years, when it's so much so important for your development, poor nutrition and um, poor educational attainment. So, you know, the, the cycle just keeps continuing and perpetuating. Um, so and if, if we want to improve children's outcomes, if we want to improve adult health, then we need to be getting in early and doing, you know, the work in the preschool years. We need to be levelling up and making sure that, you know, that it's 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 not affecting as many children as we could. And that's all done by government and by policy. And, and that's why we as paediatricians should be shouting from the rooftops, this is not good enough. This is unconscionable um, for a third of our children to be treated in such a despicable way. And you know that's dictated by government policy and we need to be shouting at our politicians listen this is unacceptable it's such a huge such a huge number to think about like you i think it's really easy to think think about it from a a distance like if you're general public and you're thinking oh well you know it's not me and you think it's a a small bubble of a population but you know nearly 30 percent is a huge number of 
children in the country and I think you've touched on you touched on that this really nicely Julianne in your um in what you just said um but are there any other reasons other than the ones you've already mentioned where we need you know your childhood outcomes affect your adult outcomes why is it really important that we are recognizing and then addressing poverty as a bigger issue than we currently are well, for in my job, for example, so the basics, so um, poor children are twice as likely to die as rich ones. So you're more likely to die. So, you know, that is, you can't really get much more um, stark than that. So um, in our own department, you know, you're more likely to have a sudden unexpected death in infancy if you're poor. Um, you're more likely to die in a road traffic collision or be seriously injured. Um, and you know when we wrote why children die for the RCPCH, you know these those figures are are based in fact, and it's the same for across the UK. So poorer children, you know, have much worse outcomes than rich children, and that is just unacceptable. It's and the sixth richest nation in the world. That is just not acceptable. It's horrendous, and I'm sure Ian would agree. Yeah, and I I think you're exactly right, and you you know this um. As, 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 as in this day and age, we're seeing the National Child Mortality Database release really quite shocking figures about uh, child mortality and infant mortality. I mean, the infant mortality we've known for some time that the infants in the born into families in the most deprived decile are twice as likely to die as, as those in the most affluent decile, and, and you know that's got no better. And certainly, when we look at the increase in in child mortality, uh, as you go up the deciles of uh, deprivation and um, as in, you know more and more deprived and um, for, for each decile that you jump your relative increase in, in child mortality increases by 10 percent and you're exactly right julianne it, it, it's for all the reasons that you've said you know for any illness whether it be acute infection whether it be cardiac illness whether it be asthma attacks whether it be being hit by a car or a train or mal you know, whatever it is, it all comes down to, um, to to socio-economic inequalities that we see. And and when we compare the UK with the rest of Europe, um, we do badly. You know, we do badly in terms of hospitalisation. We do badly in terms of mortality. We did badly in in many ways during uh, during COVID. And when you look at how families in the UK were hit by uh, the, the financial Sort of pressures of, of the of, of the lockdowns and, and the COVID recession, um, we saw that the UK did much worse than, uh, say, for example, Norway. And one of the reasons for that is that families just have a better deal in Norway. For people are are looked after better, mothers are looked after better. There are better rights for parents. There are better rights for workers. There are better benefits. You're you're exactly right, Julianne, when you say that we should be. Um, focusing on, on on the government as, as as a reason for this because you, you know and i'm very stark when i say this and, and others uh, i think uh, when i first said this everyone took a sharp breath and i got a bit criticized but child poverty is 100 percent a political choice you you know we've assumed that this is just part of um life we've just assumed that some children are rich and some children are very poor we've assumed that this is a direct um, consequence of the economy and that's nonsense it's none of those things 
it is a political choice. If you choose to, you know, if you choose to prioritize something over child poverty at political level, then then you've you've made your choice. So, you know, if someone landed in this country and said, "Okay, well, you've got this ED consultant saying that one third of the of the children in the country are living in poverty, are having limited life choices. What are you going to do to level up?" And if someone said, "I'm going to spend a billion pounds on a train." You'd go and know that <laughs> that that won't address this. Do you know what I mean? The, the, yeah. the whole focus of leveling up is just wrong. Children are bottom of the pile. They're not a priority. They're not seen as a priority. There. I mean, you, you you look this week at, at you, you know you look during the COVID pandemic. You look at absolutely anything. There is zero urgency to do anything to help children. Mm. When adults were deemed to be at risk at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. We built hospitals like that. We built hospitals in two weeks. Uh, you, you know, in my mind, rightly so. We hadn't, you know, we thought that that people were going to be at risk. We we dealt with it. We've been saying for decades that children are dying because they're poor, and yet we're still having to have this conversation in tw- in 2021. My first medical conference that I went to was in 2001, and it was around the opening of the Shore Start centres, and and um, it was a you know, called poverty and child health. That was it was a Royal College uh, conference. And twenty years later, we're talking about how bad it is that we closed the Shaw Star Centres. You, you know, there was such an excitement, there was such a feeling that at last the messages got through, and that if you're poor, you die, and uh, or you're more likely to die. And we've just gone backwards. Everything has just gone backwards for the reasons that Juliana said, which is that we have politicians that prioritise other things over children. And it's such a short-sighted um, view because actually if you invest in children, you know, you're investing in the rest of the economy and it will um, be fruitful for the economy. But um, it suits the current government to have a third of our population living in poverty, a third of our children living in poverty. It's no... Um, it's it, it hasn't happened by accident. It's by design and it's by political um, policy. And it suits them. And I know you've already <laughs> mentioned a couple of times, haven't you, about uh, um, the Marmot Review, which I think was initially around 2010 and then and then re- I think he updated it last year and he gave a talk at the conference. Um, have there been any areas where, um, you know, it, things have improved? <laughs> uh, you know, Obviously, obviously, lots lots can be done better. Have there been any success stories? So, so it, one of the things, that, and and Julian will see this absolutely. In, in fact, I don't know why, but I've got a feeling that in some of the um, in some of the devolved nations, this might be, I, I don't know why this might just be a perception that I've made up like years ago. But if you look at people who are um, in deprivation and compared to people who are affluent. There's some real injustices. I'm going to talk about air pollution and and obesity as the two biggest ones here. So if you look at air pollution, the poorest people make the least air pollution. They breathe the most air pollution and they benefit least from any policies to try and improve air pollution. So they they, they make the 
the, the least they breed the most and and when people try and get better it's very much focused on the middle classes and the other example that i think is really stark and, and I, I i don't think these are written in the marmot review but the, these data are freely available if you look at obesity we all know there's a childhood obesity epidemic but what's less um or what's been less accepted until uh, the, the, the data really last year from the uh, National Child Measurement Programme showed that, yes, there is an obesity epidemic, and yes, it is getting worse. But it's if you, if you look at you, you know deciles and quintiles, it's only really getting worse in the poorest quintile. It's getting better in rich children. The, you, you know, rich children are less likely to be obese than they were 10 years ago. Poor children are far, far more likely to be obese than they were 10 years ago. Uh, and again, we see discrepancies uh, in terms of race as well. So the rates of the, the rates are increasing in, in white children by 1% to 2% over the last 10 years and by 6 to 10% in Asian and black children. So, y yeah, I think things have got better for the richest children in many ways. The, or, or I say things have got better. The divide has got worse. And some of that is because there are advances in policy and things that, that, that are making things better for the richest children or the children in the richest families. Yeah, and Ian mentioned choice there. Um, so, you know, in my conversations with children in the emergency department and their families, so constipation, for example, um, and we say give them five pieces of fruit and vegetables every day, lots of fresh fruit and fibre, you know, for some people, those five pieces of fruit and vegetables are not an option. If you have to live on a very meagre income, it's, you know, the choices that you have to make about what you feed your children, you know, are choices that I don't have to make. Um, and it's really difficult. You know, we have, you know, some of our um, staff in the, in the children's hospital having to access food banks because although they're working, they're still poor. They're still living in poverty. Um, and that's a misconception about poverty. You know, lots of people think these people are, um, you know, living off benefits. It's their own fault. They're feckless. They don't know. They're not hardworking. And, you know, poor people, you know, are the same as every one of us. They just happen to be poor. It's just bad luck. Um, and it's, you know, we need to be having those conversations. It's not something um, that's wrong with them. It's something that's wrong with society. They are poor because of government policy. So you, do you know what, Julianne, you've hit the nail right on the head there. And before you said it suits the government or governments to have poor people. And there's one, you know, there's various strategies, I think, to try and address how do you deal with, with, with poverty. And the number one top of the list for, for me, and this is where I'm focusing a lot of my time at the moment, is destigmatizing poverty. And if you trace back where that stigma comes from, um, you, you know, to use a phrase that, some, that um, someone else has, has, has used, uh, stigma is the machinery of inequality. If you, and, and then, you, you know, my sort of take on that is also that inequality is the machinery of, of stigma. So if you have a, uh, a, a perception or a, or a narrative, exactly as you've said, Julianne, that, you know, People who, you know, take, for example, single mothers. So you and I both know, you, you, you know, when you've got single mums coming through, 
your department, when I've got single mums coming through my clinic, we both know that this is one of the most resilient, resourceful, caring, amazing sets of people in the in the world. And a lot of these guys go, you know, particularly those with, with not much money, go, go through life being incredibly um, uh, sort of organised and, and, and they're, they're a fantastic group of people. But if you look at the narrative, about single mums on, you know, accessing benefits. You know, these guys are seen as making poor choices, being feckless, being, um, you, you know, go out and get a job. You know, 70% of the people living in, or children living in poverty in the UK have at least one parent doing at least one job. The whole idea of go out and get a job is absolutely nonsense. But it suits the government well to, to, to have that narrative there because when we start trying to address things, when we start trying to address food poverty, I mean, you, you know, we've been doing, uh, I've been really fortunate, it's been a real honour to, 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 to have been trying to influence things around the human right to food. And I've been working with some Labour MPs, very much led by a, uh, an MP called Ian Byrne from, from, from Liverpool, who's is just fantastic. And what we've been trying to get is the change in the law such that food and the right to have food is written in and enshrined into the UK law. And it's impossible to do this. And the reason it's impossible is because, I mean, you look at the national food strategy that just came out, was written by Henry Dimbleby, you know, and this was all very much about, oh, educate people to have this, you know, teach people how to cook vegetables. Like Julianne's, right? I mean, Julianne, you've talked about children hiding food in there or, or storing Toddlers storing food in their nappies. Like they, 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 we're not talking about families of of poor people sitting there hoarding food in their house. These are people that need calories to get through the day, or they'll die. And you know, talking about berries and stuff being superfood, like this stuff is so far off the mark. And the only way you can get away with it is by telling people that it's the fault of poor people. Otherwise, you just can't get away with it. Mm. You just can't. Stigma is the machinery of the inequality that we see. And whether it be air quality, whether it be people living next to a landfill site, whether it be how politicians treat us, whether it be benefits, whether it be housing, whatever it is, the reason nothing changes is because for centuries there's been a perception that if people are poor, it's their fault. And it's ridiculous. And it's the one thing uh, we need to change. And Julianne is exactly right to highlight to highlight that, I think. Okay. And I think it's also incumbent upon, you know, the likes of Ian and I and your listeners that you pointed out, you know, like I thought I was just telling it like it is. It would be, yeah, that's an interesting article. Um, but actually, you know, people were shocked, stunned. You know, I was just telling narratives of children who, you know, are so hungry, they're stuffing food into their nappies because they're worried they're not going to see another bite. You know, seven-year-olds eating three bowls of Rice Krispies because they're starving with hunger. Um, you know, little um, five-year-olds who have got iron deficiency anemia because all they eat is chicken nuggets. Now, that's not because they aren't offered other forms of things. It's all that parents can afford to give them to eat, you know, and it's ridiculous. But actually, you know, that's, that narrative is, is carried on across the UK. There are parents who are working really hard, who are doing their best, but actually, you know, 
without government intervention, it's it's a it's a pointless task for most people. I have three children and they are very hard to look after. I have a good job, my husband has a good job. Um, you know, it, it costs a lot of money to feed your children healthy, nutritious food. You know, I watch these programmes about shop to save and all of these things and I just think, look, are you serious? Are you having a laugh? You know, if you know, when I go to the shop to buy a pint of milk, a loaf of bread and a few bits and bobs for lunches, you know, you're not coming out of the shop with anything less than thirty pounds. And for most people that is a huge amount of money. You know, it is so expensive to feed your children properly, to feed them healthy, nutritious food. And all of these, um, you know, oh, teach them how to cook, teach them to do X, Y and Z. Healthy, nutritious food is expensive. You just can't get around that. It just is so difficult for people. There was um, some interesting data, which I think, uh, again, point to this idea of, what we, you know, the group we should be targeting is 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 the group that just get left behind, and that is, uh, so the, from the Food Foundation, they looked at each decile of deprivation and calculated how much after your accommodation would you have left in your pocket, um, in order to, so basically, you know, how much money left in your pocket after accommodation would you be spending on just feeding your children according to government guidelines, right? So these are government guidelines, government recommendations. And in the richest decile, which is, you know, the doctors are, are, are pushing this decile. When we look at um, the, the richest uh, decile, you spend sort of 10 to 20 pence, you know, 10 to 20 percent of your expendable income on, on food, which gives you 80 pence to give your children all the other things in childhood that they need. In the most deprived decile, you're spending 70, 75 pence of every pound on just feeding your children. It's completely unsustainable and it's completely unfathomable that they would then have the types of, uh, of, of, of lives that, that, that they deserve to have. And, um, you, you know, as, as a kind of, sort of prime example of, 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 of how this can be it can lead to difficulties in paediatrics is that one of the things that people often ask is how do you spot who's in poverty and even you know i i couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more julianne that you, you know definitions of poverty and stuff are they're interesting to see what the trends are and this that and the other but actually there are a lot of people who are on pretty good wages who haven't got that much money left in the bank by the time they've you know they've, they've gone through through life and um and there are also things around the opportunities that are taken away from your children in order to give them things that they need. So, you know, often children will come to clinic um, dressed really well, dressed really nicely, and, and, you know, why should they not be? But something else has to give for, for, for that to, to, to happen. You know, there's one of the things that we see a lot in the NHS is this story of um of, of you know the mum who I mean how many how many times have we heard this? I, there won't be a single listener to your call uh, to your podcast who hasn't heard someone at some point say and tell me if I'm wrong Julie but someone at some point will say oh I see mum didn't have time to go to the social services meeting but she did manage to get her makeup and her hair done and you go look how rubbish does she have to feel in herself <laughs> before she meets our doctor definition of, of, of sympathy or, you know, the threshold for which like, pe people have their self-respect and pe people have the things that they that, 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 that make up who they 
are, you know, their self-respect, their self-esteem. These are the things that we should never try to take away. But the, the types of ways that people are having to just get by with what Julianne is describing, you know, that whole story of people haven't got enough to get by, they have to sacrifice. The types of things that they have to sacrifice are almost always things that eat away at your self-esteem and uh, and your feeling of self-worth. And again, it comes back to this idea of this being a political choice. If you grind the people down, they'll just accept whatever rubbish you throw at them and say, you should be grateful for this. I suppose when I hear you guys talking, uh, lots of the aspects speak to those Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, of the real bottom rung of that, of having a safe place to live, um, having food, uh, you know, the real basic needs. And if you know, I think I've heard it talked about, you know, with, with the um, with food poverty, if you're hungry, you can't learn. And if you can't learn, then you can't get out of the cycle that you're in. Um, and so it's just like this self-fulfilling prophecy of, you know, all, all the aspects you're talking about already. And I think we'll hold it there for this week. Thank you very much to Dr. Julianne Maney, to Dr. Ian Sinner, to Tom and to Rebecca for recording that for us. Please join us again next week for the second half of this episode. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites. <laughs>